just in case you didn't know. We bought a building. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm really excited about this. We are really excited about that. We really want to knock a hole through that wall at some point soon. That would be fun to do. Um, and, and yeah, you can join us and maybe bring, bring a sledgehammer. It'd be great. Uh, <laughs> well, I hope this isn't being recorded. No, it is. Um, we are very excited. The, the, in case you don't know, we're basically, we have two main reasons for that building. And we're going to split the building pretty much 50-50 according to these. First one is we are, we are massively outgrown Sundays in terms of youth and kids space. We are literally, you know, right up to the walls as it were. And so we are desperate for more space for that. So Kev is actually going to come up here next week and preach about uh, the youth, a vision for the youth, which I'm really excited about. Make sure you come to here or at least grab the podcast. The other half of the building is, is based on the feed project and ministry that has just continued to grow. And so it's an amazing thing. We definitely need more space for that. And that's what I want to talk about today. In case you don't know, in case you've, been, you've just joined the church or every time we mention the word feed, all you can think about is lunch. If, if you don't know what feed is about, let me tell you. It started about six years ago. A very simple idea that we, uh, our assistant pastor at the time, Rick, just was aware that there are people in the community that didn't have food on their tables. A basic thing. And so with a broken heart, he just said, we have to do something about this. So we, we called the church. We said, look, when you're out shopping, would you just buy an extra item or two? Bring it back. We'll bag it up and we'll give it to those who are in need. Very simple idea. But what we thought was just going to be helping a few people a week has just continued to go. I want to show you a 36-second clip of, uh, very specifically, of, um, of something we put together about two years ago. Let me just watch that. Amazing. This was done two years ago. The quote in there was about 50 people that were helping um, a week. Well, the lights need to go back on. There you go. Thanks, Matt. Um, we, uh, we are now, two years on, we're one of the county's largest food banks. We're helping around 100, over 100 households a week are coming here. I mean, that is amazing. And doubled in size in those two years. You know, it's worth understanding kind of why it's here, you know, looking at kind of the, the nation as a whole. And I've done a bit of research this week, which will kind of help us flesh out the, the actual need. Now, you've got to understand, although the UK economy is officially uh, recovered, you know, actually that doesn't impact us, you know, the people, uh, general people every single day for a little while. And actually what's happening is there are things that are making it very difficult. So new policies are being introduced, especially benefit cuts. And these are starting to have a, a big impact on homelessness, of income, and unemployment, and various other things. So we're, you're still facing those kind of issues. You know, would it surprise you to know that there are a large proportion of people in this country today, in 2015, who are earning less than what the government calls the minimum income standard? In other words, they are learning less than what the government deem um, appropriate for a minimum standard of living. Would that surprise you? If, if not, then let me give you some stats. 34% of families with kids and couples earn less than the minimum income standard. 34% of couples, families, earn less. I mean, that is just devastating. But this is, this is going to blow your mind. How many, what percentage do you think of single parents earn less than the minimum income standard? Any guesses? 56. 56? 75? Okay, the actual answer is 71%. 71% of single parents are earning less than the, what the government deem as an adequate, adequate um, level of living. I mean, that's heartbreaking, absolutely shocking. 
What's really bad and what's really sad is that there are more benefit cuts to come. You know, as more things are introduced, as, you know, this impact will continue to take place. But we won't see that impact for at least a couple of years. Because what happens is benefits are, are cut or things that, you know, are not available. And what happens is people kind of go, okay, we'll, we'll rejig our finances and we'll work this out. And maybe we'll just put something on the credit card because we could probably pay it back at the end of the month. And things get worse and worse and worse. And eventually you're in this situation where, you know, people are, are taking advantage of these payday loans, which absolutely disgust me and the percentage of interest that they charge. And what happens is people get further and further into this place, into this debt, you know, build up rent arrears and just have nowhere to turn. And it's at that point, maybe two years later, that they'll arrive at the door for feed and ask for a bit of help and will gladly help them. But we don't see that straight away. It's because of that we know, we know we need more space. We know we need more space and more things we can give away to help people. And more so, there are things that we want to develop, we want to do, we want to go take this further. You know, feed has always been, more, been about more than just giving away bags of food. You know, that is definitely the immediate need, but we know that there's so much more going on as well. One of the things we're passionate about is that feed is a safe place for people to gather, a safe place where they are shown dignity, care, and compassion where they're not just treated as a number or a statistic or anything else, but they are treated as an individual and cared for. And sadly, a lot of governmental organizations that are set up are just not doing this anymore. And I, I don't get me wrong, I, I think we're very fortunate to be in the society and have the care that we have around us. But I think over many years of people sitting behind those desks and hearing story after story after story, I think they're heartbroken. I think their hands are tied behind their back because of policies. And I think they have to have this stone kind of skin in order just to keep sane as they hear these over and over again. And it is difficult, it is hard. You know, it reminds me of when we were made homeless just over a year ago. You know, we had a one-year-old and, and a baby that was three weeks old. And we had a very difficult situation at home and we ended up having to go. And we got this phone call uh, to say, look, you know, we've heard about your situation. Basically, we have a place you can move into. Uh, you need to move everything out and move in there. Um, do you want it? You have to decide now, otherwise we're not obliged to help you. And so we forced into making this decision straight away. And we thought, well, we can't stay here at the moment. We need to go somewhere. We need to do something. And so they said, yep, fine. You've got 48 hours to move everything you own, everything you belong, out of that house into the new place. I mean, can you imagine every item of your home having to be packed into boxes within 48 hours and move place? And then only to receive a phone call three days later to say, oh, we've, we now know that the, the, your place is safe. Uh, the police have got involved, which we knew was going to happen. And if you want to, you can move back in. Or you can file for homelessness. I mean, what kind of choice is that? I mean, really, what kind of choice is that? We, we were very fortunate. We, we were amongst you guys. Our church, our community, friends and family who were able to gather with us in that, those 48 hours and, and lend us a helping hand to move everything we needed into this new place. And they did it wonderfully and gracefully. But we just thought there are not people in the same situation. There are people who would struggle with this, who would have to just say, I can't move that, I just need to leave that there. And so we went to the, uh, to the council to say, look, you know, we just want a meeting with you to explain this. We're not looking for anything. We just want to see if we can help you avoid this happening to other families. 
And as we sat there with three very stone-faced people who basically just kept on reminding us of the choice we had and gave us more paperwork to fill in, we realized that we were being less than cared for. And our heart broke for those many families who would struggle in that situation. This is why I'm passionate about feed. Because feed is a place where people can come in and they are welcomed. They are cared for, they're shown compassion. Do you know the first question people are asked when they come in here is not, what's your name, have you got paperwork, have you got details? It's, would you like a cup of tea? How about a muffin? Would you like to sit down? How can we help? And someone will sit with them and talk and listen, not for any necessary sake or purpose, but just to listen and care for them. I love that we have that. But there's much more we want to do with feed as well. Let me just give you a, a kind of an idea how we would love to develop feed. If when we get, you know, move into that building, when we have the finances and are able to do so, we have, uh, well, Mark's underdone this incredible feed review. And we have these four kind of pillars of what we'd love to develop. The first one is food and clothing. We want to go beyond just tinned hot dogs for meals. We've just started a relationship, a connection with Ocada who are delivering fresh food every single week. We would love to give families nutritional meals that they can cook that week. We'd love to focus on clothing as well. You know, we, we've done, we have a lot of clothing here, but we're also aware that there are people that have just gone into a situation and they have to, you know, they have to just wear what they've got on. And it may be for a week or so. I mean, can you imagine wearing the same clothes every single day to work or whatever it is? And just imagine what people are thinking of you, looking at you. I would encourage you to try, actually. I might do it around the office this week. Because it really impacts you. So we'd love, you know, and that's one thing, that adults, but we'd love to focus on, on kids as well. Maybe set up a shop or something to some degree in the future where people can come and they can just spend a very small amount, 50p or whatever, for a small item of clothing for a kid. Or maybe we can, give, or we can give it for free if they need it. Just something that puts clothes on kids' backs and gives their parents a bit of dignity and, and like their ownership on it. And that's one aspect. The second aspect is advice and support. You know, we interview rooms where we can sit and just talk people through you know, advice and for benefits and various other things that they need. But, you know, we'd love to get agencies indoors, actually, rather than have to keep on sending people elsewhere. Third one is training and equipping partnering with other organizations to help people develop basic and fundamental living life skills. And fourthly, and, I, and this is really important, prayer and counseling. Romans, uh, sorry, just got a reminder for lunch. Uh, Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe. You know, there are lots of things we can say and we can do, but at the end of the day, there's only one name, there's only one person, there's only one God that will ever bring salvation to the whole body, both mind, body, spiritually, physically, all those things. There's only one name, and that's Jesus. And we cannot, we will not pretend that that that's not true just for the sake of helping a few people. We are passionate, not just about putting food on people's tables, but providing for all of their needs. That's what we'd love to do in this place. That's how we'd love to develop. We want a holistic approach that will help practically, but also in the same place, restore identity, self-worth, and give skills. Now, I hope and think that you'll all agree that's, that's pretty good, right? I'm, I love the plans that we have, that God has. But here's a question for you. 
Do you know why we even do feed? Have you ever asked that question? Why do we do feed? Why did it get through our um, value system as well and say, yeah, this is, this is good ministry to start? In case, you know, in case you didn't know, it's much more than us just being nice and charitable. You know, we as a church don't exist just to, uh, to look good and to help you feel good and maybe even do some good as well, you know. I hope you guys didn't know that we're more than that, right? Please tell me you did. <laughs> Let me tell you what we're about. We're about being the local church. We are about being the local church. We are about a gospel-driven, soul-saving, life-transforming, city-changing, social justice-enacting, cultural-reforming, people of God, people of Christ who want to bring his hope and love into the world around us. That's what we want to do. That's what we set about doing. That's what we're about. We're about our Father's will. We're about our King's kingdom. We're about establishing what God would want in this world around us. We are about that. And I want to spend the rest of our time together talking and sharing with you what our Father is passionate about. And then why and how we can share that passion and why we should. Let's read Isaiah 58. It's going to come up on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles, you know, follow through with me. Uh, just as a side note, actually, I was looking at this in the ESV study Bible. And it actually has this section 56 to 66 entitled as this. How to prepare for the coming glory. How cool is that? I love it. Uh, Isaiah 58 says this. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob's their sins. It's a nice start, right? For the day after they seek, sorry, for day after the day they seek me out and seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager to God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? You know, in all outward appearances, this is a, a nation that is doing good, is doing right by God. They're looking clean. They're looking tidied up. They're observing all the rules. They're praying, they're fasting, they're tithing, they're giving, they're serving. They're bringing their uh, sacrifices. They're doing all the things that they need to be doing. But yet, they stand there and say, it feels like God's holding back. Why is he not answering our prayers? So God tells them. Yet on the day of your fasting, your day of your worship, you do as you please and exploit your workers. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast that I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? In other words, God knows their heart and he knows what they were doing wasn't for God but for them. He goes on. Is this not the kind of fasting that I have chosen? To loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the food, wander, uh, the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? You know, what makes a good religion isn't the same for man as it is for God, if you can use that word. 
You know, when God says, do you want to know what's acceptable to me? Do you want to know what worship is for me? Well, it's to seek me. It's to do justice. It's to for, go for the oppressed, for the hungry, for the stranger, for the naked. That's worship. You see, God's passion above all else, above even his rightful and deserved worship of himself, above all his religious disciplines like praying and fasting and tithing, all things that are actually good for us more than him. God's passion is a passion for the poor. God's passion is a passion for the poor. You see, when you're reading the Bible, you cannot gleam over and avoid passages about the poor. There is nothing commanded that is so stronger, so much more frequently. I mean, in the Old Testament, there's at least 200 direct references to the poor. Nothing so urgent than doing something about injustice. I mean, look at Deuteronomy as a great example. These are the laws that God set before his nation as he was developing. You get a glimpse of what God's like as he puts these laws out and says, this is what I want you to be like. So if this is our God's passion, then without doubt, as his followers, it should be our passion too, right? So who are the poor? These are two Hebrew words. There are two Hebrew words, and they translate roughly as needy and oppressed. Let me just explain them. To be poor in the needy sense, in the economic sense, is to have little or no resources. It's to be lacking. You need something. So maybe, you know, if you have money, you, know, you could be an absolutely horrendous person, but the world will still do business with you. If you have a talent or skill, the world will say, okay, yep, you're accepted, and now present you with opportunities. But if you don't have money and you don't have skills that you've been able to develop, and I believe God has given us all skills, but if they have not been developed, then the world looks at you and says, no, I'm sorry, you have nothing we want. You have no marketable value. And so it casts you aside. You know, more frequently, children are growing up in families, where, in broken families, where people can't or don't model healthy things that people need to have a good life and live, a, live well. You know, they don't model how to process emotions in a healthy way. They don't model how to have healthy relationships or marriages. They don't model how to manage your money. And so what happens when these children become adults and they go into the world, they don't know how to do any of these things. And then we make documentaries about people on benefits and we look at them and watch TV and say, oh, look how irresponsible they are with their money. Look at how irresponsible they are in relationships. It's not their fault. It's not right. They're not the ones that are being irresponsible. It's the ones that have gone before them that have been. There are times in scripture when it does say that you know, people have had stuff and they've been irresponsible with it and wasted with it, prodigal son, for example. But 90% of the time in scripture, it says the reason why people are irresponsible is not, it doesn't cause their poverty. It's a result of their poverty. And if you don't believe me, Disney did this fantastic documentary called Aladdin. What does God say about the needy? He says, my heart breaks for them. They have been wronged. This is unjust. If you love me, love them. Show them the same mercy that I showed you. Share your food with the hungry. Provide the homeless with shelter, clothe the naked. 
Deuteronomy 15 sums it well. It says, if, the poor, if anyone is poor, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. In other words, identify their need and be generous in meeting it. You know, this is not about just giving a handout. This is about lending a helping hand. This is not about just giving a handout. This is about lending a helping hand, helping people to come to where God wants them to be. In feed, for example, we satisfy the need that, is, that brings people, which is food. We give them a bag of food. We say, well, let's get that need sorted because that's, that's not right. But then in most cases, we know that that's not the actual need. And so what we do, and we're unique compared to other food banks, we don't just deal with emergency food bags. We actually tell people to keep on coming. We want to build a relationship with you. We want to help you with the other areas, the things that have caused you to end up in this situation, be it your fault or elsewhere. We want to help you and love you and care for you and show you compassion and point you towards where you can get the help for the areas that you need help with. And the other one is oppressed. Oppression is caused by how others treat you. Specifically the poor and what little they have is either taken advantage of or just taken away from them altogether. As Proverbs 10.15 says, the wealth of the wealthy is their fortified city, but the poverty of the poor is their destruction. What this is saying is basically if you have money, if you have wealth, then you can put all those things in place to protect yourself. You can, you know, be okay. People aren't going to take advantage of you. But if you're poor, it doesn't matter how much you do and how much you work and how hard you apply yourself. You are like a city without walls. You have no defense. You are vulnerable. And if people want to come and exploit you and take advantage of you, there is nothing that will stop them doing that. And I want to be clear with you guys that God, God speaks a lot about this. He is passionate about that. He takes that as personal case and says, I will fight their case. I will stand up for them. Isaiah 58.6 says this, and it's quite visual. If this, is this not the kind of fasting that I have chosen to loosen the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke? You know, God says to loosen the tight grip that imprisons the poor. Give them a voice. Let them be heard. And then set them free. You know, I can see Carol, I think Roger's here somewhere. I love what Roger does and Jubilee Debt Campaign does. I mean, it's incredible. They, they go after the oppressed to help them, to be a voice for them. And so, for example, you know, actually in the Bible it says this. God says, don't, lend, don't charge interest to money that you lend to the poor. And yet we look around the world and we look at all these Ebola-affected countries and we see that they have huge national debts from loans when they're in poverty, when they were struggling. Huge debts. So they, they're now presented with this, this decision to make. Do we think about the future and pay those national debts off so we don't earn more interest on that, accrue more interest? Or do we help those who are suffering and dying? That's a tough choice. And the reason why I love what Jubilee Debt Campaign does is because they have been lobbying for a long time on this. They have been fighting the cause and fighting the case. And wonderfully, on the 5th of February, earlier this month, 
the IMF, International Monetary Fund, declared that they were going to cancel $100 million worth of debt for like Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. I mean, this is amazing news, a wonderful news. We should celebrate it. But God doesn't just say set people free. He also says break every yoke. In other words, don't just free those who are under the burden of injustice, but break the very system that puts people there. Don't just leave it as a snare for other people to go into. Break it. Destroy it. I won't go into it now, but a great example for this would be payday loans. Huge interests. Wonga charges 1,509% on any loan you take out. Ridiculous. So we need to break those yokes that burden people. So we've talked about what the passion for the poor looks like, that is to help the needy and bring justice to the oppressed. But how do we do that as the church and as individuals? Verse 7 has this interesting contrast. It says, to provide the shelter for the wanderer and the stranger, the, the stranger, and don't turn away from your own flesh and blood, your family. In other words, what he's saying here is, you know that stranger that's in your city, that's in your community? Don't ignore them. Because, I, because I'm telling you that they are just as part of your family as your own flesh and blood. You see, God created this world to be like a fabric. Uh, and what makes a fabric is it's woven together, it's interdependent. You see, you throw a pile of threads onto a, a table, onto a desk or whatever, and it's just a mess. That's not a fabric. What makes it a fabric is when each of those threads start to interweave with one another. When they go over and under, in and out and around and into other you know, pieces of thread. And when all of them come together, you have this beautiful uh, fabric that's formed interwoven, interdependent. And the more of those, the stronger, the warmer, the, the, uh, the more beautiful it can be. And that's how our communities are supposed to be. We're supposed to take all of our fabrics and place it together. Not a single thread should be alone, be loose, but all woven together to form this beautiful, harmonious, interdependent, close-knit relationship with one another. Let me give you a couple of examples of how this looks in the world. So take your physical. When things are working together, things thrive, right? So when all your threads in your body, all the different parts of your body, when they're all interwoven and connected and all doing well, then you have health. But if one thing fails, if one thing comes loose, if there's a gap anywhere in that, then you start to experience sickness and that progresses. I'll give you another example psychologically. You know, we have several components, several threads that inform our brain, including you know, our conscious, conscience, our reasoning, our feelings. And so you take, for example, that your feelings say, go and do this, it'll be fun. And then your conscience says, no, I can't do that, that's not right, that doesn't connect. And what happens is you start to see little threads coming loose. You start to experience guilt and shame because it's no longer harmonious. It's no longer at peace with one another. Things aren't connecting the way that they should. There's gaps. And it's the same with anger. It's the same with fear. It's the same with you know, hopelessness, meaningless, emptiness. All these things are an example of threads that have come loose. Something has failed. Something doesn't connect. Now, resources. 
If everyone in the community was to take their resources, their time, their energy, their money, their skills, and apply it into the, apply it into the communities, what you end up having is happy people. Communities are thriving, businesses are succeeding, they're all working as one, they're all flowing together, they're all connected together, the way it's supposed to be. Cities are a whole lot better places to live. But when resources are withheld, when time, when energy, when money, when skills are not invested into the community, to those who need them, that's when the social and fabric starts to unravel. That's when things start to fall apart. To have a passion for the poor to do injustice is to go places where fabric is falling apart, to identify those places, to seek them out, be it people, be it places, be it whatever, and then take what you have, all of your energy, all of your time, all of your money, all of your skills, and interweave yourself into those moments, into those places, into those people, to pull together that fabric of society, of your community, and you've got to understand, just a few of us doing this is never going to be enough. It's going to take all of us. Collectively, with things like feed, and you can bring food in, you can give money as we develop what we want to do in phase two. You can offer your skills for, for those who need them. But also individually, when you go out into your neighborhoods, into your communities, identify what is missing and be the thread that binds it together. Bruce Waltke, I might be making that name up to be honest, uh, is a Hebrew scholar that says this, the righteous person is a person who disadvantages him or herself for the community. The wicked person is a person who sees his or her resources as belonging to themselves. That's harsh, isn't it? Verse six says this, loose the chains of injustice, deal with the oppressed, and then it says, share your food with the hungry. This literally means serve, Wait on the hungry. It means get involved. That's justice. And so when you're not doing that, when you're not sharing what you have, it's not just being selfish or stingy. God calls it unjust. The only problem with what I've just said, and I think it's good and it's impacted me quite a lot, is if I just left it there, what will happen is we end up feeling guilty. And God is not a God of guilt. He doesn't put us on guilt trips in order for us to do something. So let me just finish with this. Why do we help the poor? In Matthew 25, Jesus reworks this Isaiah 58 passage as this. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. Sick and you visited me. Prison and you came to me. Then the righteous, the one who disadvantages themselves, will say, Lord, when did we do these things? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. But to those who don't, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these brothers, you were refusing to help me. And they, will, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. What's Jesus saying in this? He's saying, if you love the poor, you love me. But if you trample on the poor, you trample on me. It's like a husband who identifies with his wife or a father who identifies with his children. If you trample on the poor, God says, you trample on me. If you insult my wife, you may as well have insulted me. But if you love my children when they cry out for help, if you help them, if you don't ignore them, and you've loved me, 
And Bella, uh, I was at my car the other day around the corner from the house and Bella had somehow escaped our two-year-old daughter and she was looking for me, so she was walking up and down the road. Yes, we're that bad of parents. Um, <laughs> and then some guy saw her and he approached her and just made sure she was safe. He asked her where she lives, he asked her where she was going and just tried to help her. At that point, I caught what was going on. And as I approached him, I thought, this guy owes nothing to this girl. But he has stopped her from going into the road. He's trying to help her find her way home. He has loved her. He has loved me and what I deem as precious. Only Christianity tells you how far God has gone to identify with the poor. You see, when God came to the earth in the form of Jesus Christ, he was born in a feed, uh, in a feed trough. Not only that, when he was circumcised, he was offered, uh, they were off, his parents offered two pigeons as the sacrifice. That is the basic, minimal standard that you can offer. In other words, they were the poorest of poor. And Jesus essentially spent his adult life being homeless. He arrives on Palm Sunday, his great day, with a borrowed donkey. He has his last supper in a borrowed room. In a, he's buried in a borrowed tomb. He was needy. He lacked. And then he dies naked and his clothes are cast lots for. Talk about oppressed, being a city without walls of protection. Jesus' Jesus' arrest, his interrogation, his, was at a time of night when it shouldn't have happened. The lack of defense counsel that was allowed, hitting him in the middle of the trial. No public notice was given. Absolutely everything about his arrest and trial was a miscarriage of justice. Jesus didn't just suffer for the poor. He suffered with the poor. Could the band come back up, please? God literally became one of the oppressed. And then he went under the yoke, the burden, for all of us. And some of you may say, I'm not poor. But you are, you're poor in spirit. You see, you came before God covered in sin. You were oppressed by the enemy. You were held bondage by him. You had nothing you could offer God. You see, whatever the world says you have or not, whether you have money, whether you have skills, you have no marketable value before God. You have nothing. You are needy for forgiveness. You are oppressed by the enemy. No matter how hard you work, no matter how good you may be, no matter how loud you sing or how much you give, it will never be enough because of the sin that's within you. But it was on that cross when Jesus was most needy, most oppressed by the world. As he identified with us who are poor in spirit and disconnected, we had threads missing. That he took all of his threads, all of his glory, all of his goodness, all of his life, and he weaved it into us. And he bound the brokenhearted. He brought good news to the poor. He set the oppressed free. He saved us when we were falling apart. And Paul was not exaggerating when he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you may know his poverty, so that by his poverty you might become rich. He threaded himself into our life and threaded us and met our needs and connected us to the source of life itself. See, if you don't get that, 
that you were poor before God, then you won't understand God's love for you. And if you don't understand God's love for you when you were poor, then you won't love the poor with a passion that God does. But if you do, if you get God's love for you when you are poor, you will share God's passion for the poor because when you stop and look into their eyes, you don't just see yourself being poor. You see the very face of your Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why we have a passion for the poor.